We're going to be looking at verses uh, 6 through 13 this morning. Um, But I'm going to read from verse 1 just to get the flow of the verses. So I'll read John chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down to 13. It says this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then these are our verses for this morning, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your precious word. Thank you, Lord, that we can know that when we open your word, we're we're hearing from God. These words were breathed by the Holy Spirit. And thank you, Lord, that uh, your word is like a sword, that it cuts through confusion. And it cuts through just the clouds of opinions and the noise that we face. So Holy Spirit, would you, as the teacher of all things, help us together to hear from you in your word? Would you glorify Jesus? Would you lead us out of darkness and into light? Would you save some of us this morning? Would you speak to your people? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we read uh, John 1, 1 through 5, if you remember, if you've been here, they have been all about the glorious person of Jesus. We're learning things like Jesus is God and he created all things and he's the word and in Jesus is life and light and the darkness doesn't overcome it. And now at verse 6, there's like a, a shift We're no longer looking at Jesus. We're learning about uh, what you could call ministry. We're learning about a man who was sent by God to show others who Jesus is. And, And then we learn why we need that ministry, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't, the darkness refuses Jesus. And, and then we learn in verses 12 and 13, the goal of ministry, that people would come to see the light and believe and trust in Jesus and would become children of God. And it's important to notice, uh, it's like a jarring transition, right? Verses one through five is just glory and beauty and majesty in Jesus. And then verse six, look at what it says. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Like it, it should be jarring both in style and in substance. We just went from Jesus to John. We should feel that. 
And that, that is kind of the way um, that these verses are framed. You know, if, if we, we could frame these, these verses in three ways. The first would be this. True ministry in verses 6 to 8. The need for ministry in verses 9 through 11. And the goal of ministry, verses 12 through 13. And so right now we're going to look first at what is true ministry. And I actually, I want to do this. If you have a Bible, flip with me to the book of Isaiah. It's kind of towards the middle of your Bible. Um, Isaiah chapter 6. I want us to notice something, the the pattern of ministry, the the way that ministry happens before we get into uh, fleshing out these verses. I want us to see this in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read just the first uh, seven verses together. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who was called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And actually read on a little more. And I, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. You see, we, we see in here the pattern of ministry that is also in the book of John. And it always starts the way John starts. It starts with beholding the glory of God. You guys, we were created, you were created to behold the majesty of God, to worship him, to look upon him. That is why you exist. And that's how the book of John starts off. It's, but look at who God is. Look at who Jesus is. He's glorious. He's amazing. But, but what happens when we behold him, we realize we are unclean. We are sinful people. And it's only until we are cleansed and our guilt is taken away that something happens to us. Our response after we behold God and we've been cleansed by him and received his mercy, our response is, send me. I must tell others of this glorious God. That is the response of one who beholds God. And that's what happens in verse six. John the Baptist was actually the cousin of Jesus. He grew up knowing Jesus. He knew Jesus was God. And in verse six, we see verse six through eight, a picture of true ministry. 
we see that he has beheld the glory of Jesus. And so what he wants to do, and there's, you could sum up ministry in two, two points. The first thing is this. What John wants to do, what true ministry always is, is to point people to Jesus. It says he came as a witness to the light. A witness. You know what a witness is. If you're in court and you're a witness, it's because you have a firsthand account of something. You witnessed something. You saw either it's a person, you know a person, your character witness, or maybe you saw an event and you're telling, yes, this is how it went. This is what happened. John the Baptist is a witness sent to tell others who Jesus is. And in fact, that's what the whole the whole gospel of John is one big witness to who Jesus is. True ministry is always about pointing people to Jesus. Now, let me say this, you guys. This is a transition for our church. It is a change in leadership. But I want you to hear this. Here is what will not change. Our wholehearted commitment to witness to the glory of Jesus, to personally behold Jesus, like I must see Jesus, and then secondly, to tell others about Jesus. That is what true ministry is. That's what every faithful church and every faithful Christian has been doing for 2,000 years. You guys, every sermon, every Bible study, every prayer meeting, every home group, every conversation over coffee at this church is only faithful ministry if it revolves around the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's ministry. Ministry is, we can, we can do so many other things, but the most important thing in any church, any ministry, any Christian's life is that they would point others to Jesus, that they would be a witness to Jesus, that we would, we would view our life as John did, I am sent As Isaiah was, I am sent. I am in my neighborhood, in my job, with my friends and family and coworkers. I am sent to be a witness to Jesus. Our church exists to be a witness to Jesus. We are here so people can come and hear about Jesus. Now, if that's the goal of ministry, the second the second thing follows is this. If ministry is about pointing people to Jesus, it will always be directing attention away from ourselves onto Jesus. True ministry is always humbly diverting attention away from us. It says of John, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. He was, his whole ministry was, hey, don't look at me. Don't care about me. You need to look at Jesus. You need to behold Jesus. Now, you guys, let's be honest. As human beings, we have always been tempted to value the witness over the message, the witness over what they're communicating. We have always been tempted to um, maybe overattach ourselves to people like John when the whole point is that they would point us to Jesus. And any faithful witness in our own lives have been faithful because they have pointed us to Jesus. And now I want you to think about John the Baptist for a minute, okay? Picture you lived in Israel 2,000 years ago. It has been 400 years since anyone has heard from God. No prophecies, no prophets, nothing. 400 years. That's like 1600s. Nothing since then. And then suddenly this man shows up. And he's speaking prophetically from God. 
And he's calling people to turn from their sin. And all these people, thousands of people are flocking to this man of God. And they're being blessed by his ministry. And imagine you, you, you say, I, I want to go see this man. I want to go witness. I want to go view what a true prophet of God looks like. And so you go out to the desert. And the first thing you notice is, where's the church building? Where's the glorious, like, steeple? Like, what, what is this operation? It's just the wilderness? Okay, that's interesting. And then you, you go and you, and you realize there's thousands of people here. And there's no money being made. Like, you, you would think, John, you're not capitalizing on, like, the business opportunity here. Think of all the revenue you could create for the kingdom of God. And then you actually see the man, and you notice his wardrobe is this, like, ratty old camel skin and this belt, and his hair is everywhere. And you're thinking, like, who is this guy? What is he doing? What is this ministry? He's a prophet from God. And you think, this is, this is strange. This is unusual. And you think, well, maybe this is part of the shtick, you know, to get people out there so that he can tell them, you know, all of his spiritual insights. And so you wait for him to speak and he finally opens his mouth, the prophet from God. And what is this man of God gonna share with us? And do you know what his entire ministry, all of his sermons were all about? They were about Jesus and not himself. Look at just a few cases. Matthew 3, 11, he says this of Jesus. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John did not think too highly of himself. In fact, he said he wasn't even worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. He said in John three thirty, he, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. John made sure everyone knew his ministry was not about him at all. It was always about Jesus. You see, God has ordained ministry to work this way. One of the ways the Bible talks about us Christians is clay pots. We are clay vessels, jars of clay. And what is important is the treasure that we carry the message of Jesus, not the vessel. And, and what an amazing job we are doing. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God orchestrated it that we would be ordinary human beings. And a true church would be full of ordinary human beings so that God would get the glory so that God would get the glory. You know how the strategy of ministry is to be? Look at Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter two. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness. Any of you ever feel weak? And in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is God's design for us. He has made us clay pots on purpose so that he would get all the glory. Do you know what a clay pot back then is like a Ziploc bag is now, right? You don't spend much time admiring the Ziploc bag. 
It, you just want to make sure it's doing its job. It's not leaking, it's sealed, and it's going to carry what you need. But, so, so we don't appreciate the Ziploc bag, but we certainly value its purpose, that it's carrying something very valuable. You guys, God has ordained you and me to be ordinary Ziploc bags, and our value is in our usefulness to bring the treasure of Jesus to people. And this should do something, you guys. Number one, this should give us comfort because salvation does not depend on us. We cannot save people. All we can do is just deliver the treasure that is Jesus. Don't think you need to have, like what Paul said, I, I don't need to be strong and have no fear and never tremble and I'm, I'm so clever and all my, I have all this wisdom and I'm gonna convince people that's not the way faithful ministry works. Faithful ministry works with people who are weak and are afraid and who really aren't that smart or that wise, but, but we are full of the spirit of God as we share the gospel. And when the gospel goes forth from ordinary people, it is clear that God is saving people, that Jesus alone is the light. And our job is simply to bear witness to the light. The first thing this should do is give us comfort. But the other thing it may be doing to some of you is it may be pricking your pride a bit. Because you may be like, well, you don't know, I'm, I'm a pretty special Ziploc bag. Have you seen this quality that I can do? Have you, have you noticed my volume's a little bit bigger than their volume? Have, have you noticed this about me? And, and, and we just need to remember, though we are uh, cherished by God and created by God, and we are so important in his kingdom, we are still just Ziploc bags. And the value is not inherent, it is what we carry and I just want to remind us again, church, I know we know this, but may we never be people who say, you know, I'm only going to hear the gospel through that Ziploc bag. Like that is, it is, it's absurd, actually. We want to hear the gospel. We want to hear the word of God preached. And if the word of God is preached and if Jesus is proclaimed, then it doesn't matter what Ziploc bag is up there doing X, Y, or Z. We care about Jesus and the gospel. We want to behold Jesus and then ourselves share Jesus. That is true ministry. That is what ministry really looks like, pointing people to Jesus and away from ourselves. And, and in fact, we become, um, we become ineffective when we want to insert ourselves into that situation. You know, one uh, ancient theologian, Chrysostom, said, the excellence of a messenger consists in saying nothing of his own. That's exactly right. The excellence of a messenger consists in saying nothing of his own. We have more than enough to share. Let's just share who Jesus is and trust he is able to save people. That's what John knew. John the prophet, this amazing man of God knew. Do you know what? It's all about Jesus. The second thing we see in our text, verses 9 to 11, is the need for ministry. Why do we even need to bother telling people about Jesus? And essentially, verses 9 to 11 is saying this. Humanity has rejected God. It's essentially what it's saying. And it actually says it in two ways. In verses nine through 10, it, it talks about the world has rejected God in general. And then in verse 11, it talks about how the Jewish people have rejected Jesus in particular. And so I want us to see both of those things. Verses nine through 10, let's read that. The true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. What these verses are saying is Jesus, the light of the world, created all things. And his creation is so glorious like we've all looked up in the night sky and been just, this is incredible. How could this be? That is communicating there must be a God. When we look at the created order, we think this, this can't be some accident. There must be a God. And yet verses 9 and 10 tell us, even though God has made the world and is in the world in a general sense, all creations declaring his glory, we don't recognize him. People do not give God the glory he deserves. This idea, if you, if you are familiar with this passage, is fleshed out in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18 to 23, where Paul says, look, God created everything, yet all humanity rejects this God. I want us to read this together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Pause, that's referring to light. When Jesus created all things, it's like light. It's plain, it's there. Clearly, there's a God is what, is what he's getting at. Unpause, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. One more verse, yeah. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What he is saying is when God created the world, it is clear there must be a God, but all humanity rejects him. We, we go dim in our understanding. We don't worship God, we worship idols. That is what John is saying in verse nine and 10. The, the light shined, but the world doesn't recognize him. But, but it's, that's only the tip of the iceberg because think about this. Jesus is, it's like he's saying, okay, I created all things, they've rejected me, so I'll just go to them. I'll become a human being. Surely they'll receive God in the flesh. And look what verse 12 says, or verse 11 he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own. It gives the sense of he was coming home. It's as if God went away on a trip, and then he came home, and his own family doesn't even recognize him. And then it says his own people, his own people didn't receive him. If you've ever experienced betrayal, in any sense, you have a small taste of what the God of the universe experienced when he became a man and went to his own people. The whole gospel of John is a testimony that look how people react to Jesus. Look how the Jews, God's chosen people, respond to Jesus. The Jews who were chosen out of the nations and were given the whole Old Testament and all the prophets who said there was a Messiah who was going to come. When he finally came, his own people have rejected him. You guys, this shows us why ministry is needed because we reject God. You know, people say today, um, 
you know, people are basically good. People are basically good. If you give them the right environment, you give them a proper education, maybe give them some spiritual practices, like all will be well. Do you know what flies in the face of that statement is how we reacted when God showed up? A perfect man, perfect in every way, only healed and taught and blessed people. How did humanity respond to God in the flesh? We killed him. If ever, if ever something indicted humanity, revealed our true character, it's when a perfect man shows up and we kill him. And worse than that, how did God's own people, how do religious people who've been prepared to receive God, how do they respond? The same way the Jews killed their own Messiah. We need ministry. We need light. We need the gospel because we together reject Jesus. John puts it like this in John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And we should feel at this point just this, the heaviness, the sadness that we, that we respond this way to God. But thanks be to God, that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, the third, uh, the third part of our sermon, this, this section here shows us the goal of ministry, that people would receive and trust in Jesus and become children of God. We know this verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You guys, that's our goal. We are witnesses so that people would come to receive and believe in Jesus. In, and look what it says. It says, in his name. Okay, let's be honest for a minute. It is not salvation to just intellectually agree, yeah, yeah, Jesus is, is the son of God uh, and he died on the cross for my sins. When the Bible talks about someone's name, it's referring to their entire person. A, a, a deep knowledge, intimacy of, of a person. Which, which is to say this, when you believe in Jesus truly, you are coming into an intimate relationship with the person of Jesus, a living person, a real person. And that, that relationship is so profound that when, when it happens, verse 12 says, you receive the right to become a child of God. Like, this is no, you know, yeah, I think I'll try this. Maybe you'll see. Like, like, this is so significant that when we believe in Christ, we become children of God. And then I, I want us to note, notice this as well. Today, it's a really common sentiment for people to say, yeah, you know, everybody's basically children of God. God is the father of all people. Uh, let's, let's look at what verse 12 says as clear as day. It is only those who receive the name of Jesus who are to be called children of God. To become a child of God, you must 
receive Christ and believe his name. This is no general acceptance of God. This is no, oh, maybe my other religion will be counted as Christianity. We must believe in the name of Jesus. And I hope we feel that weight. Like, like there are people out there who have never heard the name of Jesus. And the only way for them to become children of God is to believe in his name. There's no other way. There's no other way than to come to a knowledge of the name of Jesus. John 3.36 develops this even more. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Church, I hope we, we know this, that our role as witnesses is eternally significant. That there is no other way for people to be saved than belief in the name and the person of Jesus. God, would that burn in our hearts that we, that we would long, as Paul did, that we would, our hearts would have unceasing anguish for the lost, that they would know the person of Jesus. And now verse 13 helps us understand when we come to receive Jesus and believe in his name, what's really happening? No problem. We, we, it happens. <laughs> Verse 13, what is happening in salvation? Look what it says. They were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You guys, salvation doesn't happen because you were born in a Christian home, because you have Christian parents, because you have Christian grandparents. The Jews relied on their ethnicity. Surely we will be accepted by God because we're Jews. We're the people of God. And here we are reading, no, you have to receive Jesus for yourself. You must be born again. And that does not happen simply because you were born into a Christian family. What else it says is this, you are not born again because of the will of the flesh or the will of man. Do you hear that? That word will in Greek is lema, and it means a person's desired purpose, plan, or outcome. He is saying that you cannot be born again because of your natural desires, that you naturally would want to be born again. He says it doesn't come from the will of the flesh or the will of man. The only way to be born again is to be born of God. Look at how the rest of the New Testament fleshes this out. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to what? His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, undefading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You guys, we often like taking credit for our salvation. We often think, you know, it must be because I was good. It must be because I was in a good family. It must be because I'm better than other people. It's no, by his great mercy, we have been born again.
This is offensive to human pride and achievement. But we must remember we have been rescued. We had to be rescued. We were desperately lost. And yet God had mercy on us that he would come for us. That his spirit would blow and cause new life to come into our, into our hearts. We'll develop this idea more when we get to John chapter 3. But I want to read a few more verses out of John 3 about this idea. John is saying, listen, this happens only because the Holy Spirit graciously blows and brings new life. Look what he says in John 3, 6 through 8. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows, and that word wind is the same word for spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. And you may ask, well, so how does it happen? What hope is there for me? Well, let me say the Bible is clear as day. Receive him, believe in him, accept him. Trust in him that he died for your sins. Repent of your sin and you will be born again. But it, but it has to be this supernatural thing. We don't earn it. We don't work it up. Salvation. Christianity is not, let me just try harder, try harder, try harder, do more, do more, do more. No, you can't work it up. It's only the grace of God that you are ever born again. And that, that metaphor, birth, is this intentional, the Holy Spirit and John use this metaphor on purpose because birth is significant. And I want to close with just a few application points for our own hearts, for our new birth. And the first is this, birth is costly. Today it's financially costly, but what I'm getting at is like physically costly. My wife just had a baby a few months ago and it was a long, costly, sacrificial experience. As we know, it's nine plus months and then hours in labor. Uh, she, my wife's reading a book on motherhood and th- uh, the authors are pointing out the, the way birth is costly. It actually relates to our spiritual birth as well. I want you to notice this. While a mother gives birth through physical groaning, sweat and tears, her water breaking and the shedding of her blood, Jesus makes a way for life through his physical torture, sweat and tears in the garden, water pouring from his side and his pure, perfect blood shed for us on the cross. Church, our new birth came at the price of our Savior's death gave up his life for us. He shed his own blood for us that we could be born again. The second thing about birth is that birth brings about a dramatic change for this baby. This baby was in darkness. All of a sudden, it's just lights everywhere. They were, they were bound up in a womb and, and then suddenly they're completely physically free and independent. They had no breath in their lungs and in an instant, they have these fully functioning lungs. When someone is born again spiritually, your entire nature changes. You go from spiritual death to spiritual life. You are no longer bound to your sin, but you are an entirely new creation who loves God, 
You, though you were spiritually dead, had no breath, no spirit in you. Now the spirit of God is blowing and filling up your lungs and leading you in love for God, love for his word, love for people. I think culturally, there are many people who would say, yeah, I'm a born again Christian, but there is no change in their life. There are no signs of life. They are still in darkness, bound up in their sin. No, no evidence of the spirit in them, no desire to be with God and study his word. If that is your life, you need to be born again. You don't need some devotions to give you some encouraging thoughts. Like you need a radical new change in your nature. You need to be born again. The third thing about the new birth is this. It brings us into a new relationship with our heavenly father. When we're born again, we, we now have a new heavenly father. And we receive his daily affection and his care and his presence. The spirit of God pours out the love of the father to you in your own heart. We enjoy his care for us. My son was just sick a few days ago, had a fever, and he, he never likes, he's not a snuggly kid, but he just like puts his head, his sweaty head on my shoulder and just like hangs there and just my heart just aches with compassion for my son. That is how our father just scoops us up and cares for us. We also receive his fatherly discipline. Any good father does not let his children do whatever they want. He disciplines his kid. And we as children of God receive his fatherly discipline. It may be painful, but it is for our own good. And then the last thing, we look forward to our eternal inheritance. Like, it's cool if you have a rich dad, but, but we have God as our father. We have an eternal inheritance inheritance awaiting us. We look forward to that inheritance as the sons and daughters of God. Now, I, wanna, I just want to close by an invitation. If you've never experienced these things, this life, this freedom, this love for God, I want you to hear this. God loves you, and he sent his son Jesus for you, and he faced death for you. And if you receive him, if you trust in his name, you will be born again, completely changed, all your sin forgiven, the power of sin broken over your life, filled with the spirit of God. You will experience new life like you've never imagined it. And then church, I just wanna, one more time, I wanna encourage us that in this season, where we may have many things, many questions, many places to divert our attention, may we not forget our purpose to behold Jesus and to be sent witnesses for Jesus. That is why we exist as a church. We have a community that needs witnesses to Christ. We have people in our area who may only hear of Jesus through your witness. You are sent, not to be impressive in and of yourself again, but just to point people to Jesus. 
Church, may we never forget our sole purpose to behold Jesus and witness other, to others saying, look at our glorious, saving Jesus together. So Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Lord, I ask that your spirit would bring your word into us, that it would change us and affect us. It would stir us. It would give us new life. Those of us who don't yet know you, would you bring new life? Lord, I pray for our church right now. Lord, that you would encourage us and lift our head to Christ, the unchanging one, the holy one, the one who came as light for us and has saved our souls. Holy Spirit, would you help us to behold the glory of Jesus together? Would you make Jesus more beautiful than he's ever been, more glorious and wonderful and satisfying, that we would experience life in him, light in him? Jesus, we thank you for this church. That the name of Jesus has been proclaimed for 16 years, and Lord, would it be for many, many more generations that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed, that the person of Jesus would be worshipped, that the good news of Jesus would be taken out into this community and into the nations, that people would be born again to a living hope. They would experience the love of God for them. Lord, would you give us boldness as a church? We wouldn't shrink back as if somehow we need to be the Savior, that we would just be bold and tell people Do you know Jesus? Have you been born again? And now, Lord, I ask even as we finish this time in worship together that you would would snap us to attention around the person of Jesus. That we would, by your grace, take all of our thoughts captive and we would just look at Jesus.